You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. Jesus, strong and kind, we can always run to him. It's an amazing truth. For those who are of us who are in Christ, we can come to Jesus when we fear, when we're in pain, when things aren't going the way that we want them to. Jesus is there. and He showed us that on the cross when he came to us to rescue us through his own death, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, we're thankful for that. We're thankful for your love, your compassion, your mercy, and your grace. Help us not to forget that this morning. Help us to see that in the scripture this morning, that Jesus, you are the humble king pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So this morning we're going to start a new section of John. Uh, Starting in verse 13 through the end of the book, this is a new section, but specifically here in 13 through 17, John 13 through 17, is what many call either the upper room discourse or the farewell discourse. And so this second half of John's gospel is going to be almost like a completely different sermon series. We're still going to go through the book of John, but it's going to feel a little different. You see, chapters 1 through 12, John is building the case for Jesus' divinity, that Jesus is the Son of God who came to rescue the world. He's focused on proving that Jesus is who he says he is. He does this through focusing on primarily seven signs, the water into wine, the healing of the official son, the walking on water, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of a lame man, the healing of the blind man, and then the pinnacle of the seven signs, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. John was laying out the case for people to believe and trust in Jesus, to trust that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing in him, through trusting in him, they may have eternal life. So chapters 1 through 12 cover Jesus' earthly ministry, his ministry to the crowds. And in those three years are encapsulated in those 12 chapters. And then there's a shift. And John changes the focus of the gospel. This shift is from Jesus' public ministry to Jesus' private ministry amongst his friends. And the rest of John's gospel is simply the last hours of Jesus' life. So the first 12 chapters, three years of ministry. The last 10 chapters, Jesus' last hours before his crucifixion. In fact, I'm convinced that the more this, this uh, story, this account that we're going to look at this morning, happens on Thursday evening. That from chapter 13 to chapter 17, it is Thursday evening. And the next Friday, Jesus is going to be crucified. That next morning, just a few short hours away. So Jesus turns his attention away from the world, his attention away from the crowds. He turns his attention away from everything else and focuses primarily on his disciples. And John does this in his gospel brilliantly. For the first part of John's gospel, he focuses on Jesus being the light of the world, that only life is found in him. In fact, the key words through John chapters 1 through 12 is that of light and life. And in this last half of the gospel, the focus turns from light and life. In fact, the last mention of light in John's gospel is in chapter 12. And it focuses on Jesus' love for his disciples. So in chapter 13, there's a shift to love. 
And that's a big part of what we're going to look at this morning, Jesus' love for his people. And to tell you how big of a deal this section, especially these five chapters, are, the word love is used 61 times in John's Gospel. The word love is used 61 times in John's Gospel. And here in these five chapters, chapter 13 through 17, that word love is used 34 times. 34 times in five chapters. So more than half of the uses of the word love in John's Gospel happens here in this short little window. We see that love is a big deal to Jesus. Both his love for us and his love for others. And our love for others. Because he tells us to imitate him. And we are going to see that played out in detail over the next several weeks. This morning scripture is probably familiar to many of us, if not most of us. We're going to read about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. This is an interesting account that only takes place in John's gospel. The three other gospel accounts don't even discuss or, or hint at this. But John uses this event to tell a similar story to the synoptic gospels, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Specifically, John wants us to see Jesus' love for his disciples and Judas's betrayal of Jesus. He wants to teach us through this washing of feet what is called kingdom economics, that the first will be last in the kingdom of God, that humility is the pathway to exaltation, that we as followers of Jesus are called to serve, not be served, mirroring Jesus' life. So the story of the foot washing is one of humility, of service, and of love. And here Jesus sets the example for his disciples. He lays out what it means to be great in the kingdom of God, what it means to follow him. He demonstrates the depths that he will travel to show his love for his people. And then he expects the same thing from us. And we can read and we can study this passage and this story and we can twist it into our need to do better, to be better in order to please God. We need to be more humble that we need to do more of these things. We can turn this passage of Scripture into a morality issue. But what we need to see is that we need salvation from Jesus. What we need to see is that the reason Jesus challenges us to be humble, to be like Him, is so that we can operate from a position of gratitude. We don't serve for God's acceptance, but we serve from God's acceptance. We don't serve to earn God's grace but we are grateful to serve because we have received God's grace and as we will see in the scripture we can only serve God once we have been cleansed by Jesus the cleansing comes first and then the service and this cleansing only happens because of Jesus's great love for us a true understanding of the gospel leads us to humble service it is a natural outflow from our hearts to serve God because of what he has done for us I want us to examine our hearts this morning in light of our call to be humble servants for our Lord Jesus Christ. So before we look at the scripture, let me pray for us. Father God, give us a heart of humility, a heart that seeks the heart of Jesus. That when we look at the world, we see a world that needs to be loved, a world that needs to be served. Lord, that we are not any more special as followers of Jesus that we have been saved by grace through faith. That you have called us to yourself so that we can do the good works that you have laid beforehand. Lord, thank you for our salvation. Help us to understand the humility that comes along with understanding grace, understanding acceptance. 
Lord, as we look at this, this account this morning, I pray, I pray that you would illuminate your scriptures, that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the goodness and the glory of Jesus and the goodness and the glory and the blessing that we can be if we serve like Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 of John chapter 13. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We're going to stop right there for just a minute. I want us to consider Jesus' love for his disciples. These are some beautiful words from John about Jesus' love for his disciples. Remember, these next five chapters are all about Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. Chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is preparing them for his death. And this is a very loving thing for Jesus to do. He has spent the last three of their li- they have spent the last three years of their lives devoted to Jesus. Following him around and, and listening to his teaching, they gave up everything to follow Jesus, and they were about to lose the one that they had devoted their life to. So Jesus sees fit to equip them for, their depart- for his departure. The hour had come. The alarm had sounded. The bell had tolled. Jesus is on his way to his death march. This act of preparing them for his death is an amazing act of love. We read that in John 3.16 that Jesus loved the world, right? We know that Jesus loves his creation. But I want you to see something, that, something that's here specifically. The love Jesus demonstrated before his death wasn't a love for the world, but a love for his own. Jesus has a general love for his creation, but he has a specific love for those that belong to him. Think about it this way. My calling as a follower of Jesus is to love my neighbor as I love myself. I am to love everyone that I come in contact with. However, I do have a specific and a particular love for my wife. I have a specific and particular love for my wife. I love all people, but my wife, my wife is my own. And I love her differently than I love other people. A particular love. So if you love Jesus and you belong to Jesus, he has a particular love for you as his disciple. He died so that you could experience that love. He sacrificed so that you could know his love. And if he loves you in a specific, in a particular way, notice what John says. He says he loved them to the end. There are no off-ramps when it comes to Jesus' love for his own. He loves them to the end. That is the end of his life. He loved his disciples. The end of their lives, he loved his disciples. And the end of our lives, Jesus is going to love us. And he will love us for all eternity if, if we belong to him, if we are his. 1 John 4.10 tells us this, that love consists of this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God loved us first, and then in return we can love him. I don't know where each one of you are this morning when it comes to understanding the love of Jesus, but I want you to know that Jesus loves you and he cares about you and he wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants you to experience his particular love for you. So don't miss out on it. Now Jesus shows us what love is and how he loves us by laying down his life, by giving himself up, by sacrificing himself on the cross. That's the culmination of his love. His death for our sins. His death so that we can be reconciled or be brought back into a good relationship with God. His death on our behalf. 
And through that death, we can be cleansed. We can be washed. We can be made clean. Now we, on this side of the cross, have an advantage that the disciples didn't have. We know the end of the story. They didn't. They were living it in real time. They don't know what lies ahead. So Jesus is going to paint a picture for them of his love. He shows them his love and devotion by humbly humbling himself and cleaning their feet. And we're going to get there in just a second, but before we do, John gives us a little bit of a note. He gives us a little bit of a note about Judas in verse 2. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. We see the beginning of betrayal right here. John wants us to see that all the disciples are present for this teaching, at least this first teaching. Even the one that would betray Jesus, the one that was an enemy of God. John uses this interesting phrase here. He says that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas to betray him. So was this betrayal Judas' own doing, or was it the devil's? Well, that's a good question. One of the things that we have to remember is that human res- our humans are responsible for what we do. We are responsible for what we do with Jesus. The devil made me do it is never a good excuse for your behavior. Oh, the devil made me do it. Judas is responsible for what he did. But see this, he was prompted by the devil, not propelled by the devil. Does that make sense? He was prompted to do this by the devil. We already have learned in John's gospel that he was greedy, that he was a thief, that he was simply using Jesus for his own gain. He had already hardened his heart towards Jesus. He was already serving a different God, the God of money. He was not really serving the God of the universe. He was more interested in lining his pockets than he was in serving Jesus. Jesus to Judas was just a means to an end. Jesus, Judas had opened the doorway to the betrayal, and the devil kind of pushed him through the threshold. Judas was used by the devil, but Judas was also willing to, to do it. Judas was also a willing participant. And not only that, he was responsible. We'll talk about Judas a little later. John 3 says this, Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So in this section, what we're going to see is we're going to see who cleans, who cleanses us. The first thing we need to see in this, in this story is that this is, there is more to meet the eye than just of foot washing. Much like John has done throughout the, his whole gospel, is he write, writes and teaches on multiple levels. It's like an onion. There are many levels to what John is teaching us. He wants us to s- continue to come back and to read his gospel so that we can see the complexity, but we can also see the simplicity. The foot washing that we will see shortly is not about washing feet. The foot washing is not about washing feet. It's about Jesus' death and resurrection. So here John wants us to look at who does the cleansing. Who does the cleansing? Jesus does the cleansing. Why? Because he was sent by the Father. He was sent by the Father and he is going to go back to the Father. And this is a refrain we see over and over in the Gospel of John that Jesus was sent by God and he will return to God. And because Jesus is sent by God, he has the authority to cleanse. He has the authority to clean. He has the authority to forgive. He has the authority to accomplish what he has set out to do because he is sent by God. And not only that, but he is going to go back to God. You see, Jesus is the creator of the universe who came to fix what humanity had broken. And because of his obedience, 
And because of his submission to God, he will accomplish what he sets out to do. So who cleanses? Jesus cleanses. How does he cleanse? Because he was sent by the Father to cleanse. And then verse 4 says this. So he got up from supper. He laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel that was around him. So how does Jesus cleanse? The simple answer to this question is through the incarnation or that Jesus put on flesh and came to dwell with his people. And then through his death and his burial and his resurrection, we see that he was the one who cleanses. Earlier in the service, I read through Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now that specific scripture was one of the first hymns, one of the first songs that the church sang together about Jesus. And I want you to notice the parallels between that hymn and what John tells us here. Now you may think this is a little far-fetched, but I want you to remember that the true author of scripture is God himself. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, man wrote what God declared. And so there's parallels here that we may not see all the time. The first thing John tells us is that Jesus got up from supper. The picture painted here is that Jesus is sitting at his rightful place at the dinner table. Then he begins to get up and he moves from his rightful place towards the disciples. This mirrors Jesus at the right hand of the Father, ready to put on human flesh and move towards his creation. Then John tells us that he laid aside his outer clothing. The removal of that robe is only something that a servant would do in order to accomplish the task set before him. And this kind of paints a picture of Jesus while he was still in heaven, emptying himself to come to earth. He was removing his glory, the glory that he had with the Father, to come live on the earth, taking off that cloak. That's what Philippians 2, 7 says. Instead, of, instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Jesus, before he came to earth, laid aside his glory to become a servant. So the God of the universe makes himself a servant, stripping away the glory that he had with the Father to come to serve the people who would reject him. Jesus took the form of a servant. Ultimately, through this form, he was exalted above every name on heaven and earth, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is through service and love that his sacrifice cleanses us. Let's not overlook what's happening here. Jesus is the one who created those feet. He created those toes, and now he's going to wash them. And they had nasty feet. They had real nasty feet. Do you know someone with nasty and stinky feet? I do. (laughs) And Levi's feet would be clean compared to what Jesus was facing when he was cleaning these disciples' feet. You see, during during Jesus' time, they didn't have the luxury of paved roads. They didn't have socks. They wore sandals. And for the most part, they walked everywhere they went, in the heat, in the Middle East, where it was really hot. Not only that, but livestock was everywhere. And with livestock comes, what, the byproduct of livestock. So the streets were nasty. The streets were covered in dirt. They were littered with feces. And these men would travel on their feet. What happens when you walk in the heat? Your feet start to sweat. And as you're kicking up that dirt, that dirt starts to adhere to them. Your feet become disgusting. And maybe you're not paying much attention and you step into a present left behind by Joseph's donkey. Regardless of the circumstances, your feet would be disgusting. And during the first century, 
They didn't have tables to eat at like we have. They didn't sit in chairs. They didn't have their feet on the floor and their bodies at the table. They would actually lay down and recline next to each other to eat. They would lay on their left, ha- on their left side and they would eat with their right hand, picking up their feet. Their feet would be behind them, but guess that their feet are still on the same level as everybody else. So it's customary for the people to have their feet clean before they would eat so that they would be pleasant to be around so that that part of their body wouldn't be so stinky. But the only people who would clean feet would be servants. Like, I wouldn't clean the feet of a peer. And certainly your superior wouldn't clean your feet. The foot washing would always be done by someone in a lesser position than you. In fact, the Jewish people wouldn't even let a Jewish servant clean their feet. That was going to be done by a Gentile. Someone seen as the least of these. Someone seen as an outcast and undervalued by society. So a first century Jewish person reading the story or hearing the Gospel of John for the first time would sense the scandalous event that's about to happen. John has shown us that Jesus is the God who spoke the world into existence. He is the one who was sent by God to save people. He is the Messiah, the promised Son of God, who can heal the lame, make the blind see, and raise the dead. And here he is, acting like a servant. He is not asserting his power. He's not asserting his prestige or his position. Rather, he is laying them all aside to serve his disciples. Jesus begins preparing his disciples for his departure by showing them that he is not beneath serving them. That he is a servant that has come to cleanse the dirty. That he has come to remove the filth. Jesus is compelled by his love for his disciples to serve them in this humble display of grace and love. Jesus is washing their dirty feet and taking the filthiness upon himself, putting it on the towel that he had at his side. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel that Jesus came to take our sin, that he came to take our shame, that he cleans us up so that we would be made right with God, so that we would have a seat at the table. But not everyone at the table is ready to accept Jesus' gift of foot washing. In fact, I'm sure that many of the men there were kind of uncomfortable with what was happening. They knew what was at stake. But we all know that if there's going to be one person to speak up, there's going to be one person to voice his opinion, it's going to be our dear friend and our mirror of ourself, Peter. Of course, Peter does. Peter speaks up. In verse 6, we see this. He, that being Jesus, came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what, am I, what I am doing you do not realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter replied. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, does, doesn't need to be washed anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. And this is why he said, not all of you are clean. We see here there's a need for cleansing. John doesn't tell us which person Peter was in the order, right? In the line of washing. He just simply says that he came to Peter. But Peter isn't having any of this. He doesn't want this. Peter has a high view of Jesus. He knows and believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows and believes that Jesus is more important than a servant. 
And so Peter looks Jesus in the eyes, bewildered by what he has seen. And he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? To which Jesus responds that Peter doesn't understand. That's a refrain in the Christian life, right? Jesus telling us we don't understand, but we soon will. This is a further allusion to Jesus' death and his resurrection. Jesus wants Peter to see that he came not to rule, but to serve. He came to lead by example. Jesus is doing something far greater than simply washing feet. He is demonstrating what the kingdom of God is going to look like. That there is no one in the kingdom that is above serving, not even the king. Peter refuses Jesus' offer to wash his feet. You will never wash my feet. In the, lingu- uh, in the original language, Greek, this is a more forceful rebuke than what we see here. Essentially, Peter is saying, you will never, not forever, not in all eternity, wash my feet. Peter believed that Jesus' washing of his feet was dishonorable, that it was below Jesus' stature and station. Peter was unable to see what Jesus was doing. Peter wasn't thinking theologically. He wasn't thinking spiritually. He was seeing Jesus through the eyes of the world. And this act of washing someone's feet was not fitting for a rabbi or a Lord. And let's be honest, Peter also knew this, that if his rabbi willingly washed somebody's feet, he would have to do the same. Right? That's what a disciple does. He follows the example of the teacher. And I can assure you that Peter doesn't want to wash any feet. Do you want to wash anybody's feet? (laughs) So how does Jesus respond, though? How does Jesus respond? If I don't wash you, this is in verse 8, you will have no part with me. Jesus is telling Peter that if he isn't allowed to wash Peter's feet, then Peter will not share the inheritance with Jesus. That Peter will not inherit eternal life. If Peter cannot and will not be served by Jesus in this way. He cannot be served by Jesus in salvation. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If Jesus isn't going to be able to wash his feet, what makes Peter think he's going to be able to accept his sacrifice? Peter believed that he was preserving Jesus' honor by telling him, no, don't wash my feet. But really, really what's happening here is Peter is asserting his own pride. Peter is asserting his own pride. Have you, having your feet washed by someone else takes a form of humility. It's humbling to wash somebody's feet, but it's equally humbling to allow someone to wash yours, especially when you see that person as an equal, or in this case, somebody greater than you. Peter was not disillusioned about the amount of filth and stench coming off his feet, so he wanted to protect his own pride. There was no way he was going to allow his teacher, his rabbi, his Messiah to stoop that low. But Peter had to realize that if he couldn't accept the feet washing by Jesus, then how could he accept the death as a way to salvation through Jesus? If he wouldn't allow Jesus to wash his feet, then he couldn't allow Jesus to save his soul. Jesus wants us to understand that he came to clean up all the mess in our lives. There is no dirt, no stain of sin, no rebellion that is too great for him to clean. And the first step to being cleaned is knowing that you are dirty knowing that you are stained by sin, that you are covered in rebellion. So you have to let him wash you. You cannot hold on to your sin. You have to let him wash it away. And admitting your sinfulness, admitting that you have violated God's goodness, takes an act of humility. 
You can't be prideful and ask for forgiveness. You can't be prideful and call out to God. You have to admit that you need to be washed. You have to let Jesus clean your feet. So when Jesus rebukes Jesus, or when Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus rebukes Peter, Peter overreacts. Surprise, right? Peter overreacting. He says, watch myself, watch all of me. My hands, my head, completely cleanse me from top to bottom. And then Jesus responds in this way. It's an interesting way that Jesus responds. He says, one who has bathed, Jesus told him, does not need to wash anything except his feet. But he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Jesus tells Peter that he has already been cleansed. He has already believed. He has already trusted Jesus as the Messiah. He has already inherited eternal life. He has bathed in the trust and has been cleansed. So only his feet are dirty. This is a spiritual truth that we need to grab onto. If we are in Jesus, we have already been cleansed. We have already been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Our garments are spotless. They are white as snow. Our sins have been washed away. This is what we call being justified. We have been made right with God. We are in right standing with God Almighty, if we believe, if we trust. Again, it's conditional. But we also need to participate in the daily washing. Even though we are cleansed, we still get dirty. We still sin. We still step in the stink, right? We still defile our bodies with rebellion and disobedience. We don't need to be bathed because we have been cleansed, but we do need to have our feet washed. That is, if we belong to Jesus. If we are his, we are clean, but we do need to ask for forgiveness for the sins that we commit. And unfortunately, there are those in many of our churches that want to appear clean. Jesus says that you are clean, but not all of you. They want to play the role of the believer. And this is exhibited by Judas. He looked clean. He knew what to say. He knew where to go. He knew how to pretend to belong to Jesus. And let's not miss this. He was even trusted by the group. He was trusted by the group. He was trusted enough to be in charge of the money. But, it's a, but the sobering reality is that people can look good. They can look clean. They can appear to belong to Jesus without actually belonging to Jesus. And here's my plea to you this morning. If you are playing the game and you don't actually believe Jesus or trust in Jesus, stop playing games. Stop pretending. Let go of the games and listen to Jesus. Follow after him. Trust in him. Allow him to wash you for good so that you can be made new, so that you can know him as your Lord and Savior. You may be fooling those around you, but I can guarantee you, you're not fooling God. He knows and loves those who belong to him. He knows and loves those who have been cleansed. So what does this foot washing mean? Well, Jesus is going to tell us in verses 12 through 17. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, 
you are blessed if you do them. So Jesus here is giving us a perfect example. Jesus is, is the perfect example of what it means to serve in love and humility. That was his whole purpose in washing the feet. He wanted to show his disciples that he loved them enough to become a servant. That he loved them enough to stoop to do the lowest of tasks in the name of love and grace. He, the teacher and Lord, took the form of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. All of the disciples' feet. Even the feet of the disciple that would betray him. Now in some denominations, they and believers, they take this to mean that that regularly we should practice foot washing, much like we do baptism of the Lord's Supper. Now part of the problem with that is that we don't actually see that again in the New Testament. We don't really see foot washing again in the New Testament. The disciples don't do it again. It's only mentioned one other time in the New Testament, that's in 1 Timothy 5, talking about good, the good works of a widow. So what Jesus is really saying here is that it's not about foot washing, right? But it's about humility. It's about love. It's about serving one another. Notice in verse 15, he said that we were specifically and particularly supposed to love one another. Well, that mirrors what we saw in verse 1, right? That he specifically and particularly loves those who belong to him. That is, for us, we are to love one another as believers. The grace, love, and humility Jesus demonstrated should be the same grace, love, and humility demonstrated towards other believers. Because we're not greater than Jesus. He created the feet that he washed. But we are to emulate him. We are to be like him to other people. He is sending us out as ambassadors, as his witnesses, as his followers, so that people can see love, grace, and humility of Jesus in our lives. We, as followers of Jesus, are called to be servants. We are called to be a blessing. We are empowered by the God of the universe through the washing of Jesus' blood to serve others in love and humility. Here's the thing. We are called to give humility, love, and grace to fellow believers, to those who love Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. We are to give love, humility, and grace to all people, even the enemies of God. Jesus didn't just show love, humility, and grace to those committed to him. He showed it to Judas too. Let us not forget that it is a pleasure and a privilege to serve God in all circumstances. To love people because of what Jesus has done for us. The last little bit that we're going to cover this morning is in verse 17. He says this, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If we know and do the things Jesus demonstrated, we are blessed. It's not just knowing the things and the stories about Jesus. It's not just believing the right things about Jesus. It's about knowing and doing that brings the blessing. Serving God and serving others brings blessing to your life. The blessing is in the doing. And the only true way to bring this blessing is to do it humbly. I like to think about Peter as he's writing his letters to those, those believers. As he reflects on Jesus' humility and the humility that should be in the lives of the believers. He's writing these letters. And in 1 Peter 5 that we just read a minute ago, Peter tells us this, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. 
The Gospels don't paint a pretty picture of Peter living the most humble of lives. There were definitely some growing pains as Peter pursued Jesus. But as he grew in his love for Jesus, and he saw the importance of humility, he started to encourage others to pursue that same type of humility. Knowing that humility was a requirement to serve God, and humility is a requirement to serve others, Humility is a requirement to follow Jesus. Humility is a requirement to be a blessing to others. So how do you do with humility? Where do you think you are? Humility is, is rightly seeing ourselves when it comes to God. Rightly seeing ourselves when it comes to God. That we are not special, but we have received grace. That we are loved. That that doesn't make us better than anybody else, but it does make us right with God. So how do you use humility to be a blessing? How do you show grace and love and humility today? How do you show grace to somebody who has wronged you and you extend forgiveness to them? Who in your life has caused irreparable harm to you that you can be a blessing to? How can you follow the example of Jesus in your life today, right now? How can you be like the humble king that isn't afraid to wash the feet of those he came to serve? It's only through experiencing the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus that we can rightly see ourselves. So have you been washed in the blood? Have you given your life to Jesus? You see, in a moment we're going to do the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is something that, that Jesus did in those last few hours of his life with his disciples. Most likely after he washed their feet, he takes the bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And he pours the wine and he gives it to them. And he says, guys, imitate me. Be like me. Love others. Now if you aren't a believer, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, I would ask that you would just let these plates pass by you. Because the, the Lord's Supper is for those who have placed their trust in Jesus. And it's not so that we can shame you. It's not so that we can point you out and be like, oh, you don't trust Jesus, but it's because we want to offer something better to you. What we want to offer to you is grace. Grace at the foot of the cross. I want you to know that this is the time to give your life to Jesus, that he came to love you. He came to give his life for you. So turn towards him. Acknowledge that you are filthy, that you are stained with sin, and that you need to be cleansed, and ask Jesus to cleanse you, to wash you, to save you, if I could have my deacons come up, pass out the, the pray. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com.